Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. Today's guest on Sustainability in You is Steve Tidball, the CEO and co-founder of Volback. They say in every industry there is someone building the future, well, in clothing, it's Volback. Founded by twin brothers, designers and athletes, Nick and Steve Tidball, Volback uses science and technology to make the future of clothing, creating gear that no one else can or will. They have made the world's first graphene jacket as well as 100-year clothing designed to outlive you. Biodegradable t-shirts, solar-powered jackets, amongst so many other products. It would be fair to say they are the Tesla of the endurance clothing world. So, Steve, welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Um, Tilly and I are really excited to be interviewing you today. For those of our audience who don't know um, Volback, Volback is all about the, 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 the future of clothing. And Steve's going to tell us all about the, the history of the company and its ethos. Um, as I sit here in my Volback hoodie, sweating away in 25 <laughs> degree heat out of loyalty to the brand but I have to say as a sport, a sport enthusiast I'm, in, I'm incredibly excited to, to speak to you Steve and learn a little bit more about Volback, the future of clothing, the sustainable brand that it is and all the technology in R&D um, that, that goes into each of your products very thoughtfully um, very usage specific as well and I think it puts NASA and Tesla to shame um, but uh, enough of that uh, Steve give us an introduction of yourself and and tell us about how Volback came into being. Okay well thank you for that introduction I'm not sure we put NASA and Tesla to shame just yet um, <laughs> probably more like business part. Um, uh, so how it came into being is um, really simple. Lots of people tell sort of foundational myth stories, as I call them, which is in retrospect, here is the genius idea we had. And here is the the, the moment that it all kicked in. And that's actually very rare. That's very, very often unlike that. So the, the story we actually tell is the, the messy truth, which I find uh, more interesting, actually. So um, a number of years ago, Nick and I were lucky enough to be um, creative directing Adidas. Um, and Airbnb, we work back in advertising. So a whole side of our lives was all about how do brands communicate and essentially how should brands operate in the world and how should they be cool and what should their perception be? And it was wonderful, but at the same time, quite superficial as most advertising and branding is. 
And the other half of our lives was spent doing very extreme races um, where we would sort of routinely go to another country, nearly die, come back alive and be very grateful for it. And what was really interesting that those two worlds that seemed so disparate and unconnected essentially collided. And um, we were fortunate enough to be sort of racing around the world for a couple of brands. And they, they sent us to some, some places you really shouldn't go for a run, like deserts and jungles and sort of mountain ranges with no visibility. And what we found is that each of those experiences showed us something that we didn't know was missing, but quickly realized was. So I'll give you some very specific examples. So we were doing a quite a tough race across the Namibian desert. And on the night before we raced, we, we couldn't sleep, like really couldn't sleep. Not like, hey, I got five hours, but it felt like nothing. Like you just didn't go to sleep. And then the next day I had the, essentially the hardest physical challenge I'd ever had. And you had to run 80 miles across the desert. And the temperature was, you know, hot enough that if you wore glasses, they could cook your eyeballs. I'm not sure if that was true, but we were certainly told don't wear glasses, they will cook your eyeballs. And um, what was really interesting is what emerged out of that race is you, you, you couldn't take technology with you and it, just, it would just melt. <laughs> um, but what you did have with you is clothes. And um, I got profoundly ill during that race and um, had to be pulled out and was later allowed back in to run the last two marathons. Um, but one of the things we were left with was, wouldn't it be wonderful if clothing could solve this very specific challenge of not being able to sleep? Uh, next race was in the Amazon, where I wasn't allowed to race because of the heat, but Nick, my twin brother who I run the business with, did. And at the end of this race, a seven-day ultramarathon through the Amazon jungle, um, the, the clothes that they had gone in um, were so covered in, you know, the kind of things you'd imagine clothes might be covered in <laughs> after running through a jungle for seven days, sort of, you know, creatures and bits of your own body, um, that they, all the competitors burnt them in a huge pile in the jungle. And I remember he came back and said, it was just this insane thing that happened at the end and everyone burnt their clothes. And how ridiculous is this? You go to the middle of the jungle, like somewhere completely kind of crazy and away from, away from you know, civilization and you do something as barbaric as burning stuff. <laughs> and then the third race was in, um, uh, it was called the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. And it's a very, very long running race through four different countries. And you, you're given about 48 hours, which is not very generous. And um, the, the visibility during the race that he did was um, reduced really massively. And you, you're on sort of really knife edge mountains. And at various points, you were down to like five, 10, 20 meters, which really isn't enough. And, and, and from this, he got, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if my clothes acted as a light source? Now, this sounds very clean. So suddenly you go, wouldn't it be wonderful if clothes could help you sleep? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you didn't have to burn them? Wouldn't it be wonderful if um, they could keep you, you know, lit up? Um, and all of those, interestingly, became some of our first ever clothing ideas. So it went on to become the Relaxation Hoodie, which was our very first ever product and designed to help you relax anywhere. And you zip it up over your face and probably not ideal for a desert, to be honest, but in cold weather conditions in the Arctic, it certainly works very well. Um, haven't you, hasn't that been used in space as well? Is that right? Uh, the Relaxation Hoodie. No, we built, a, we built something called a Deep Sleep Cocoon and we're working on oh, a, few more, a few more space ideas at the moment, which are quite, <laughs> quite good fun. Um, so you built that relaxation hoodie. Then for the for the burying stuff in the ground, we built a plant and algae t-shirt, which is built to be, you know, a t-shirt until you don't want it to be your t-shirt anymore. Then you bury it in the ground and it becomes worm food. And it's built entirely out of, you know, um, 
uh, trees and algae. And then the, the third product we built out of these ideas was uh, something called a solar charge jacket, which essentially um, stores and re-emits sunlight. So you become your own light source. Now, we obviously have lots of products now, and those are, those are just three, but they were kind of the, the foundational ideas of the brand, which essentially is that your clothes could do more. Because what was really interesting is when you did these races, you have this really profound sense of isolation and not being very well protected. And so it made it it created this really stark difference between the branding world we were in, where it talked about this is what your product does, and then actually being in a place where you very realistically can die in the next 24 hours. And it really puts those ideas to the test. And so I think what we had was this sort of profound sense of disappointment that we were essentially warming up and racing in polyester and cotton. And was this it? (laughs) Was this the culmination of human technology? Is this all we've got to give to people who are putting their lives on the line? Uh, Obviously, you know, we were choosing to put our lives on the line. We're not military. (laughs) It was a very very silly and, you know, choice that we made. Um, But... Um, and then essentially, as, as people who really loved brands, we looked around the rest of the world and in food, you can see people creating the future. You look at Heston Blumenthal or Ferranadri or Ready Med Zeppi. In cars, you could see it. It was Elon Musk. Uh, in space, you could see it. It was Elon Musk again or Jeff Bezos. And whatever industry you looked at, you could see someone really, really clearly creating the future, articulating the fact that they were creating the future and offering up this vision. And in clothing, there was nothing. It was just, um, I, there were lots of, you know, interesting clothing brands. I mean, I, I, in particular, I think Patagonia is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was no one with a really, really cl- clearly articulated vision that the future is going to be profoundly different to the present. Mm-hmm. What there was was lots of very, very similar brands with different logos. So if you were to take, you know, uh, you take, take three outdoor brands and take three of their big puffer jackets and then take the logos off them, you'd probably have to be the designer of one of those companies to tell you which one it is. And so essentially everyone had the same stuff. So you think about this idea of a a saturated market, but it was saturated by the same thing. (laughs) So in my mind, it's not true saturation. It's just lots of people doing very similar things. As I say, Patagonia would call out as the one genuine exception who do, do do wonderful work in this space. Um, but even yeah. that, like amazing, there's not like an amazing design philosophy where you know it's a Patagonia straight away. Yeah, and and a business like um, Patagonia definitely has a broader uh, remit than just the products that they produce because they have a very clear philosophy about their impact on the planet. And it strikes me at the heart of what you're doing, and we'll get on to R and D and innovation. Um, there's also that particular ethos that you have that it runs very clear through the product development um maybe less visibly stated in terms of the use of the word sustainability and long-term the long-term usage of each of your products but it clearly is a thread that runs through product development given that your products themselves are called the hundred year jacket etc can you say something about that and what that means for you yeah sure so um I mean, from from how we approached the brand coming into the market, it was very clear to us that Patagonia are the clear leaders in that space. And so from a branding perspective, what you don't want to do is just come in and be a minnow copycatting a giant because it's just an amazing route to not succeeding. 
So our angle in was essentially looking at what the future is going to look like. And given none of us can know it, because <laughs> we don't have a crystal ball, you essentially have to take a, a number of angles. And I think you can look at, you, the way we do it is we look at the really big themes that are going to dominate the future. So instead of looking at, you know, what's the cool colour next season, we look at what does the next hundred years look like for humanity? And so what does it look like? Well, it looks like we're going to be a multi-planetary species, because we will be. Uh, it looks like we're going to face significant resource scarcity. It looks like climate change is going to be a serious factor in all of our lives. And it looks like sustainability has to be taken incredibly seriously. And so what we do is we almost use them as four pillars that we design through. And ru running through all of them is essentially the idea of let's not screw up planet A. <laughs> That's what we're on. I think um, there's a wonderful campaign recently called Mars Sucks. I don't know who died or who did it. Someone sent it to me. It was brilliant. It was a series of posters just pointing out that Mars is a really rubbish place to go and really inhospitable and you die very quickly. And Earth's really wonderful. And so we design against these four pillars. And the, the way we do that, I'll, I'll take on sort of like sustainability to start with, which I don't think is a word we've ever used because I think it's so overused that it becomes very bland and meaningless and I think mm. the switch off. So instead, how we think about it is we think about, well, how can you tackle it meaningfully? And there were, there were three really meaningful ways that we started to think about it, which is one, maybe your clothes should outlive you. So even if they don't on a practical level, the idea with our 100-year range is just genuinely designing with materials that should last longer than you do, because then you simply have to buy less. That was strategy one. Mm. Um, strategy two was let's start making out of things that we can grow. So we can't grow polyester. <laughs> we don't grow nylon, <laughs> but we do grow trees and we do grow plants and we do grow algae and we're quite good at it. And especially if you look at something like algae, which is something we're going to get a lot more into this year, um, it grows at incredible speed and it grows by eating carbon dioxide. So it's kind of like as a, as a, as a source of raw material, it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, you know, sustainably forested uh, trees are exactly the same example. And so our second strand was just make it out of stuff that nature grows already or that humans can grow incredibly fast. Um, because that way, um, there's, there's all sorts of debates about, you know, what, you know, what biodegradability means, because ultimately everything is biodegradable from the shard in the middle of London to, uh, you know, a mollusk. It all biodegrades ultimately. But we're, what we were looking at is stuff that could biodegrade at speed. So our plant and algae t-shirt is 12 weeks. It's gone once you've buried it in the ground. Yeah. And so that's, that's strand two. And then strand three is um, rethinking what we think garbage is and what trash is, what rubbish is, because um, what it is, is essentially a whole bunch of pre-assembled raw materials. But we think about it as trash. There's a, there's a wonderful explorer friend of ours called Paul Rosalie. And um, he is currently trying to conserve more rainforest than any other human on the planet and doing a very good job at it. And um, he spends a huge amount of his time there. And he has this wonderful line, which is, you can't throw anything away because there is no away. There's just a place you can't see. Yeah. And so well, the third strand is really interrogating what is garbage and what can you use. So, for instance, we've got a project on the go at the moment called Garbage Watch, which is uh, a watch made entirely out of e-waste. So e-waste is, is a wonderful example. So there's just hundreds of millions of tons thrown away every year, but with all the world's precious metals in it. 
So you have stuff that we pay enormous amounts of money to dig up out of the ground. We turn it into a product and then we throw it back onto a rubbish heap, which is which is just just insanity. I mean, I think we will look back in a hundred years and it will it will look as barbaric as the start of the Industrial Revolution. It will look completely insane. Um, so those are the three strands. We sort of go dig through trash, which we don't think is trash. We create stuff that can effectively be buried back in the ground, and we create stuff that is designed to outlast you. And the reason we tackle all three at the same time is my feeling is that the learnings we make from one will impact on the other. Whereas the, the things I'm less keen on in sustainability is where someone attacks just one track and says, oh, we have the answer. Because I don't think that's a, a truly joined up way of thinking about it because I think it's quite unlikely that anyone actually knows yet. So you kind of want to, in my mind, you almost want to run as many experiments as possible and you want to run them concurrently in order that the learnings can cross-personalise mm. each other. Yeah, I love, I love, love, love the the, the ethos and, and your explanation of the, the pillars. I love the fact as well that I think that you're tapping into um, customer demand. So for people that people like me who buy your products... Um, who enjoy endurance sports you get very attached to your kit <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> so I don't like to throw away any of my kit no matter how bad it looks so if I can buy a product that's going to last a hundred years and you know long may I live to do my sport um, I think you are tapping into uh, a huge echelon of of customer demand there as well so you've got that you've got that sort of market and planetary movement but Equally, you know, the, the, the customers are, are, are much more discerning and astute in, in the way that they buy products now as well, I think. It's quite an interesting takeaway in general for the atelier industry, because actually what you're saying is that the material that is resilient enough against the element against the elements that's going to sort of endure extreme weather conditions is also the stuff that lasts if you're making it out of materials that we can grow that's the stuff that's going to last and that's the stuff that's going to keep you safe against the elements so it kind of makes you question why we're buying stuff in polyester and (laughs) cotton you know it's just like it seems counterintuitive yeah but I think it's because the the honest answer is because it's convenient and cheap I mean I think we run this exercise with people which is you know if you and the, the same is true of almost any supply chain for any product in the world which is if every product you bought came with a video of how it was made, consumption would be incredibly different. Mm. Yeah. So if you, so, you know, we, we hear about sort of, you know, factories in Bangladesh burning down when they burn down. You don't hear about it really the rest of the time. <laughs> and so you have, a, you have an industry that's built in a very, very, very strange way. If you were to, if you were to, if you were to restart the clothing industry, it would it wouldn't look like how it looks now. So you have a series of practices that are sort of inherited over the last 10, 20, 100 years, which 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 almost make no sense. It, it really yeah. reminds me of when um, Elon went to build his first rocket, and everyone said to him, "To build a rocket, you've got to go to Russia." And so he went to Russia, and he was looking at all these you know, knackered old rockets. And just thought, is this really the way I have to make a rocket? <laughs> I just went, no, I can probably make my own rocket. And coming coming at the clothing industry, not from having grown up in it, I, I just look around it and, and half the time I just see collective insanity. And it's, and you make a point, don't they? It's about the visibility of your own supply chain and feeling very connected to it. The food industry is not so 
sort of different if everybody saw where their food came from you know there might be a different impact on how products are purchased so yeah connecting people with the 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 supply chain and what it really means to have a, a product developed and made in a particular way or in a particular jurisdiction in, you know, it's part of what the whole ESG movement is about isn't it um ensuring that you understand the provenance of your product I think that will be a trend that we see emerging over time but I think it's I think it's a long time scale like a long time scale on that I don't think it's quick because you, you have to argue who's incentive, who's incentivized to do it and who's powerful enough and incentivized to do it. And you get down to a very small number of um, companies or people. So let's talk about some of the R&D that you have within your, 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 your product range. You make uh, graphene jackets. You've got fireproof jackets. You've got 100-year T-shirts and, and products that have very innovative ingredients if you like yes um talk us through just talk us through how that innovation evolved within the business and and how you find your line of sight well i'd love to say we have a team of a thousand umpalumpas sort of working secretly in a magical factory somewhere um what, what really happens is um it it's a lot of trial and error um so we start with our very, very clear steers, disease, sustainability, resource scarcity, space. And then we look for ideas that fit within that. We look for ideas where we don't go, oh, let's build a red jacket because we know we can sell 5,000 of them and make 90% profit margin. We just don't look at it like that. We think about what are interesting ideas in those particular spaces that have not been done before. And then we look to source or develop materials that will work with the ideas we've had. Um, and that timescale can be anything from you strike lucky in a week to you spend five years developing something. So it's incredibly hard to put like a generic timeline against any of these things because we don't operate like a standard business. We don't have, you know, exactly four weeks to come up with the idea and eight weeks to develop it and two years to make it or, or whatever the standard timelines are. And we don't put ourselves under those pressures. So instead, what we do is we have a constant cycle of innovation where at any moment, my brother and I could come up with a new idea, a routine we have to come up with quite a few a week. And then we just start developing them, knowing that, you know, quite at least the way we think about it is quite a lot of your babies are going to die. And so you just have to develop a huge amount concurrently. And the way, to, the way we decided to do this very early on is you don't think in seasons. You don't think in innovation cycles. You just constantly think of new stuff. And I think probably it's our background that trained us to do this. So, so being trained in advertising is, is kind of a, a double-edged sword in that you're, you're wonderfully trained in politics, which is a very bad thing. But you're also wonderfully trained in constantly coming up with ideas and ideas not working. And the client's saying, well, that's rubbish and won't work. And so our theory was if you simply generate a great enough volume of ideas some of them will make it into production and some of them will make it to the customer. So you, you always think about it as an innovation funnel because you have 100, 100 ideas and 10 may make it to market. Um, so we deliberately don't put any kind of time scale on ourselves. Um, there's no kind of, oh, we've had this idea and therefore it must be to market in a year's time. Um, one of the interesting things that we do do is we are starting to attract 
and this is sort of behind the scenes as opposed to up front at the moment, um, you do start to attract innovation. So you do start to become a magnet for it because we've sort of emerged as a, a platform for putting that stuff out. So I think a really significant moment in the history of the brand was when we built the world's first graphene jacket. Um, and we had to work with partners to do that. Like we don't, we don't have a billion dollar graphene lab tucked out the back. Um, so you have to find third party people to work with. And even once you've made that material, you then have to work with a factory advanced enough to glue the thing together because it's incredibly delicate. So I think one of the one of the things that you quickly learn is your reliance on partners and picking who they are really carefully because if you were to do this brand from scratch and say okay i'm going to own every element of the supply chain i'd need about a billion pounds in funding like overnight <laughs> so what you have to do is you have to become almost magpies going around the world finding the interesting things developing the interesting things wrapping them in an idea and so i think one of the things that's been very lucky from day one for us is that um there's no split between the people doing the ideas, me and my brother, and the people doing the sport, me and my brother. <laughs> Whereas uh, if you look at, uh, I'm not going to pretend for a minute that we're on the same scale as a Nike or an Adidas because they are giant, giant Goliaths. But the, the thing that's often an issue there is the gap between innovation and the, the person, the end user, it is enormous in physical distance and in kind of, you know, the supply chain management of how many groups and people there are in the way. And our idea always was, well, the closer we can make that gap and the closer we can keep it at zero, the more successful we will be. Because the minute you have a design department tucked over, you know, in, in, in a field on the left, <laughs> you have the athletes on the right and there's a giant gap between them, that's, that's when you end up with a real split who helps you filter all this idea generation? Have you got some scientists in there and some finance people or uh, other athletes? We, we 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 have some other people. <laughs> Just me and my brother. Yes, we have proper finance people now who really like maths, um, which is good. Um, yes, we, we're we're lucky to have um, Nick and I often talk about running the business on WhatsApp because we're, we're lucky enough to have a lot of, you know, very, very extreme mates, far more extreme than us, who'll happily sort of, you know, throw themselves on the mountain or, you know, underwater for quite a long time. And um, they'll go help test stuff. Um, mm. What we tend to do is we tend to just stay really, really, we have to stay open to two worlds at the same time, essentially. One is what is the most cutting edge stuff happening in materials? And two is what is the most cutting edge stuff happening in human performance? And as long as you stay alive to both of those things at the same time, what we tend to find is that your brain makes those connections quite naturally. Mm -hmm. um, and you tend to think, oh, well, your person A is doing this and I've just found this material that can do X. Now, that sounds, makes it sound a lot simpler than it is, but you do have to sort of keep both those worlds in your head mm -hmm. at the same time. Yeah. And then you talked about usage and that you trial your products, etc. Um, can, I, can I ask the obvious question as to broadening the product range into... For, for, for women <laughs> yeah we will be broadening the project range to women we do get asked an awful lot um at the, at the start it was simply a financial question which is we raised a very small amount of money and we had to decide who we were going to make clothes for girls or boys and given that both nick and i were boys we thought boys is probably easier because you become you become the fit model you become the tester you become the size guide you become everything um, so once we've completed our next round of financing, we are moving into women's wear. 
yes. which, which will be which will be really good. But it will be it will be what we make now. Yeah, I'm not sure what it says about me or my body because uh, given that I but I wear half of your kit. <laughs> Very happily, very, very happily. <laughs> um, so, so can you say something about the, the business model? I mean, given the ethos of having products that uh, are there for the long term, 100 years plus, um, talk us through the, the business model. How do you generate a return? A number of different ways, really. Um, so our, our primary concern in day one was building the most interesting brand we could. We didn't set out to go, oh, well, we must be, you know, our profitability must be X or our gross margin must be Y. And the reason we decided not to do that is it would have hampered the very thing we were trying to do, which was make clothes that had never been made before out of materials that had never been used. So a wonderful example would be the um, full metal jacket that we launched roughly this time last year. Now, that was a very silly product to launch in May because it's a jacket made with 65% copper and May is typically quite a warm month. But the reason we did that was because it was sort of a couple of months after COVID had truly kicked in. And copper has been shown to be incredibly disease resistant from the ancient Egyptians using it 2000 years ago to NASA using it up in space. And so I think launching that in May gives you a very good indication of what we're chasing. <laughs> so if you'd wanted to sell lots and lots of that jacket, you would have waited until October because that's when everyone is buying big jackets. Now, obviously, the jacket's high performance. It's waterproof, windproof, you know, all, all those kind of stuff. Um, but we launched it in May because it felt like a significant moment. And we wanted to show other manufacturers, if you try hard enough, it is possible to make things almost entirely out of copper which is going to be incredibly important because I think there's going to be a huge trend in disease-resistant clothes over the next 10 to 20 years. So I don't think that's going away. Um, so I think it kind of gives you an indication of the type of business model we have now, which is the business model is establishing dominance in what I see, this, this merger of clothing and technology. And ultimately, that's where the value sits, as opposed to saying, you know, we generated this amount of profit or our gross, mar gross margin is really large. How do you determine your volume and price point then? Because the ethos is clear, isn't it? The innovation ethos is clear. Your products are in high demand or, or the product runs seem to, you seem to sell out quite quickly. Yeah, well, we certainly so sell out a lot faster than we can restock them. So the sellouts typically go for anywhere from one hour to one week. But our, <laughs> it typically yeah. takes us at least 12 months to make something. So <laughs> you, you, tend to, you tend to disappoint some people. I've forgotten your I've forgotten your original question. Well, it was really to arrive at what what is the 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 the, the volume and price point? How do you determine okay. that when I mean the ethos for production is really clear and, and what you're trying to achieve in innovation and uh, intellectual property? Uh, incredibly simple factors, mm. um, which is how much does it cost us to make it? Mm. How many can we afford to make? <laughs> um, I think if I think that would become more of a challenge if we had infinite amounts of cash. Yeah. And so it's actually a fairly simple business at the moment in, in that we we price stuff fairly. I mean, really interestingly, we never sought to make price a differentiator. I mean, you do get plenty of brands in the in the sort of, let's say, it's sports and fashion space. So let's say Moncler or Canada Goose, who I'm sure have devoted a huge amount of scientific and mathematical energy to their coat has to cost exactly this amount of money. We, we don't do that. Um, our, our, the stuff we make is 
so many times more expensive than the stuff they make. Yeah, the, I was just going to say the R and D costs and proportion <laughs> just, of your costs. Yeah, and because that they also have such terrific leverage against scale that we will ultimately benefit from. I mean, I've always loved the Tesla model, which is that they have not tried to make price the story. The price is the price because the car costs that to make. Mm -hmm. And the more cars they make, the more the price comes down. Ours is exactly the same model. We don't have some sort of like secret formula behind the scenes of, you know, we're attempting to be a luxury brand and therefore our price point must stay at this, at this particular level mm -hmm. because price isn't the story. The technology is the story. And, and ultimately, if you're trying to build a big enough brand, then volume. I, I'm, I'm more. Yeah. I'm, I'm just more interested in technology. <laughs> if I have to choose between a meeting where we're talking about pricing or talking about technology, I'll talk about technology. Hmm. Because ultimately, technology is proprietary and differentiating, and price isn't. Anyone can come in with any product and go high with the highest priced vodka or with the highest priced camera. And they will always achieve a market from that simply because it's the highest price of someone somewhere assumes it must be the best. But I've been in a lot of meetings where it's not true. <laughs> and so I wasn't interested in being one of those companies. Whereas when you are in meetings where it's genuinely amazing technology being discussed, that's a really interesting meeting to be in. So we're trying to build a company where, you know, meetings are a necessary evil and I do have to be in them. We can at least be discussing something fun. Yeah, but it becomes a real value for money proposition, doesn't it? When you think about usage over the you know the life of the product, you know the price point is is oh, not low, but it, 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 if if you know if it's price per wear over the time that you're wearing it, value for money. Yeah, we do we do a really we do a really fun thing. We now have about um, twenty people who have bought our some of our hundred year gear. Um, I think we've done it with a 100-year hoodie and also a 100-year sweatshirt. And the, the reason they're called 100-year is they're fireproof, they're waterproof, they're wind-resistant, they kind of resist most of the elements, right? And we have about 20 people at the moment paying it off on 100-year payment terms. So mm -hmm. the, the hoodie's like $495. So these guys are paying $4.95 once a year for 100 years. <laughs> And what happens? What happens if they pop their clogs earlier? Then, <laughs> well, they, they, in order to in order to win that um, payment arrangement, they have to write to us and convince us that they'll be alive for hundred years. <laughs> and the people who have a good shot at doing it, we, we just take we take the risk. It's a small risk, but I think what's really interesting about that is, obviously, that started off as a joke. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it makes you think really differently about clothing. It makes you think, oh, this thing is supposed to last 100 years. It thinks of, it makes you think about how you wear it. It makes you think about everything else in your wardrobe. So it, as, much as, it's, as much as it's a piece of clothing, it's an also like a conceptual like think piece. Mm -hmm. It forces you to reappraise all the other things you're buying, um, which, I, which I find intellectually fascinating. Even if it's a terrible business model, at least it's kind of intellectually really interesting. Because well, like, I think I mean I think there are many businesses that the in my own personal view should be doing exactly that. It's 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 influencing our relationship, you know, very significantly with the things that we buy and making us think very significantly about how we live. Mm. And and your product seems to be very much at the heart of that, Tilly. Uh, no, I was just going to say, do you? visualize expanding into a wider target market with that focus because interestingly what I'm hearing is that you started out um looking for something that could weather the intense 
extreme weather sporting conditions that you were doing that well expeditions and conditions that you were in for those um and what it's turned into is a product which can weather things like climate change and the the only conflict that there is there is that fast fashion is fast fashion because people love trends and like things change over time so you might have a jacket that will last for 100 years but in six months you might want a different look and I wonder if you're I know that you have a very specific target market or you started off with a very specific target market which basically you and your brother just like a very specific kind of mad sportsman um but I wonder if you consider expanding and how you accommodate for that well, I decided a number of answers to that question. So I definitely think if um, if someone wants if 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 someone wants a new look in six months, they're they're probably not likely to be our customer. <laughs> that that's a very that's quite a an unnatural fit with the people we tend to sell to. So mm-hmm. the people we tend to sell to tend to be leaders in their own field. Like those fields are very disparate. Those fields are sort of you know from finance to adventure to health to venture capital. Like there's a lot of different type of people the, the the type of thing that tends to unite them is they're definitely type a so if they have a spare half an hour they're going to learn kite surfing <laughs> they're not going to stick love island on <laughs> um there's also a very strong crossover um between tesla buyers and our audience because essentially what we're allowing to, people to do is buy a small bit of the future now i think people are going to consume small bits of the future in different ways and as I think what will happen as we naturally open up, the, the way we think about the business is we have multiple theses on the future because no one can truly know what the future is going to hold, right? And as we open up more and more theses on the future, your audience will naturally open because you may sort of think something very different from the future to me and, and Josephine may sort of think something in, entirely different. But if ultimately we're selling, let's for argument's sake, say 50 to 100 visions of the future, one of them's likely to fit. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, we don't, we've never really approached it audience first. Again, from our advertising background, we, we, we were so, so trained to, you know, here is a character profile of a person you're going after. <laughs> and it's like, you know, they're a 15-year-old kid who lives in LA or they're, you know, a 30-year-old mom who lives in New York. And like, this is what we're trying to say to them. We, we really, really don't think like that. The, the, the way we think is that, um, in every other industry, there are huge audiences buying bits of future. Tesla and Apple are very, very, very big companies. So don't lack people who want to buy into the future. I think closing will be very similar. The danger with starting audience first is you start to design around character types that might not be true, around ideas they have that they might not actually hold at all. <laughs> Whereas if you stick quite rigidly, and it is, it is quite rigid for us of like, we think the future might look like this and we open up those theses, I think the audience will naturally emerge. So we don't do a huge amount of work with like, oh, there are loads of early adopters in Stockholm. <laughs> Let's go off to Stockholm. It just, it just isn't how we think. Um, so I think, uh, unless I'm proved completely wrong, Apple and Tesla seem to be doing quite well um, selling the future. Um, maybe behind the scenes they're doing all this stuff that I <laughs> that I don't know about, but uh, that that's how we're, that's how we're going to approach it because I think it's the thing I can control. I can't control what people think, but I can control what we make. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that answer. And I, I, I love the innovation is right at the heart of your products, first and foremost. I love, I love the long-term story, you know, of, of, of the usage of the product. And, and actually, I really like the fact that um, it's encouraging people to get outside and experience the environment in all its shapes and forms, but, but, but comfortably with a, with a product that really makes them feel comfortable in the environment. So, Steve, I, I just wanted to, in summation, kind of wrap up with some, a few thoughts, really, on what you've said today. I'm really taken with and impressed by the power of innovation within the business and letting that lead and be at the center of the business model. You're very clear in your purpose here. We already know that ESG factors and strategies drive alpha, but it is your purpose that is driving action and the business model. And the statistics tell us that this will drive investor interest and return. So I watch with interest as the business moves forward and want to thank you for your innovation and all that you do within this sector. Thank you very much for having me.